1: Today on Something You Should Know, when you have an aha moment, how likely is it that it's actually a good idea or the correct answer? Then how to take the science of success and apply it to your life? For example, is it really true it's not what you know but who you know that
2: counts? The research on this is is powerful. In fact, some of the fundamental research in this arena is on weak ties. And that is the people who aren't your closest friends, but the people who are one degree out, that's where so many opportunities come from. Plus, is there
1: really only six degrees of separation between all of us? And your bones, your skeleton. It's amazing what's going on in there.
0: You know, for example, a bone marrow, the marrow inside of our bones that creates our blood cells. Uh, Our bones protect us. They protect our vital organs, that rib cage that wraps around us. They allow our movement and our flexibility.
1: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. So I rented and watched this movie last night that I want to recommend. It's called Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne. I love this movie because it is based on the true story of director Sean Anders, who adopted three siblings through the foster care system in California. My wife and I are also going through that system to adopt our son, Angelo. So the movie struck a real chord with me, and my hat's off to Sean Anders for creating a funny, touching, entertaining, and yet amazingly accurate movie about the joy, heartbreak, and frustration of working through the foster care system. There are so many kids in the foster care system who need a home, and they are stuck in this system through no fault of their own. So, I invite you to watch the movie Instant Family, think about getting involved. It may be true that you can't change the world, but you can change the life of one child. And from experience, I can tell you, it's a pretty magical feeling. And when you think about it, that actually is changing the world. First up today, have you ever had the answer to a problem just pop in your head? You may want to pay attention to that, A series of experiments at Drexel University determined that a person's sudden insights are often more accurate at solving problems than thinking them through analytically. Now that's partly because methodical problem solving can be rushed and mistakes can happen. However, having an insight is unconscious and automatic. It can't be rushed. When the process runs to completion in its own time and in its own way and all the dots are connected, The solution pops into your awareness as an aha moment. Experiments with four different types of timed puzzles shows that those answers that occurred as sudden insights or aha moments were more likely to be correct. When taking the timing into account, answers given during the last five seconds before the deadline have a lower probability of being correct. This means that when a really creative breakthrough idea is needed, it's often best to wait for the insight rather than settling for an idea that resulted from analytical thinking, especially when there's a deadline involved. And that is something you should know. Since you are a podcast listener, you've probably noticed that there are a lot of podcasts about success and how to achieve it. And the concern I always have about some of that advice is that it is often one person's idea. It's how they found success, which is great, and it may work for other people, but it may not. On the other hand, success has been studied scientifically, and from that research comes a lot of objective advice on success. And that really interests me. Eric Barker is someone who looks at that science... He has a blog called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and he also has a new book out by the same name. And he joins me now to discuss what science has to say about success that might help you be more successful in whatever it is you choose to do. Hey, Eric, welcome. Thanks for being here.
2: It's great to be here. Thanks.
1: So maybe a good place to start to talk about success and what works and what doesn't work is, is to look at some of the, the old maxims on success, like, you know, nice guys
2: finish last and, well, let's start there. Do nice guys finish last? But see, that's it's really interesting because we we often get confused because we look around and sometimes it seems like the the bad guys are doing well, and some of the key research here comes from Adam Grant at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and Adam's a very nice guy himself. And uh, when he first looked at the data, he saw a lot of a lot of good guys ending up at the bottom of success metrics, and this this was very sad for for Adam until he looked at the. Comp- the complete results. And what he realized was the results were bimodal. In other words, there was a split. The the people who were the nicest ended up at the very bottom and the very top. And so what he realized is it's something that intuitively I think we we all grasp and that is that some people are so nice that they become martyrs, you know, and they they just they get exploited, they get taken advantage of and other people are super nice, everybody loves them, everybody wants to help them and they do great. So, you know, being nice leads to the very top of success metrics if we do work hard, if we are good, but if we just do a handful of things to make sure that you know, we're not getting exploited, that we're not getting taken advantage of. And a big part of that is making sure that you're in the right environment with other good people like you. So how, did, how do
1: you explain then why a lot of jerks end up doing pretty well?
2: See, what it really comes down to, it's, it's fascinating, is that it's, it's very much a short-term versus a long-term game. In the, in in short-term rounds, there was a lot of research that was done actually during the during the Cold War uh, to try and it was game theory uh, regarding cooperation in in the nuclear arms race and it was the the issue of who comes out the best in like when there are many rounds of a game and in the initial rounds. You know, bad guys are always looking out for themselves. They're always, you know, very aggressive and very selfish. And so they often take the lead initially. But over the long term, we, we all know people get a reputation. And after a while, there's no coordination. There's the, the people don't trust them and they don't do as well over the longer haul. So if you make sure that you're, you know, you're taking care of yourself while looking around for others, that you're in good environments. Over the long haul, people tend to do really well. But it's true that initially in the short term, you know, bad guys can get an edge.
1: Yeah. Well, it's always fascinated me about that is because some guys I've worked with people who have done very well in the long term who are extremely difficult to work with. Nobody likes them. But they have so much talent that that seems to just trump everything. As long as you're really, really excellent and the best at what you're doing, it seems like you can be a jerk and win in the long run. At least that's been my
2: observation. You, you definitely see that sometimes if somebody's in that, you know, top one-tenth of one percent. The the thing that's, you know, good for us is that in many cases, you know, in much of the work today, you know, it is Group efforts. It is teams. You know, it's we 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 see the 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 reputations of difficult actors or difficult athletes, and those are you know very often individual performers who have a very high concentrated amount of power uh, in terms of their skill, or in the case of athletes, sometimes you know they're they're competing completely on their own. So yes, the phenomenon you're talking about does happen. You know, in the working world, like I say, reputational effects when there's teams, when there's groups. You know being known as somebody who does who does well who's reliable you know this can really make a difference we can actually learn something from the bad guys which which isn't bad and that is they are self-promoters. They do get the word out about their good activities. And this is something that isn't cruel, isn't isn't mean, but if you're very nice, if you're very humble, if you don't let it be known that you're doing good work, if you don't let your boss know everything that you're accomplishing, those reputational effects aren't going to be as strong for you, and that's something that is really key to good people succeeding in the long run. So you say that
1: valedictorians rarely become millionaires, and I, I s- assume you mean by that that... People who do the best in school may not be the people who do best after school. So go ahead and talk about that.
2: Yeah, this was some research by Karen Arnold at Boston College, and she studied a lot of high school valedictorians. And what she found is is they do very well. There's no doubt about that. Most went on to, to get to college and advanced degrees. Many made six-figure incomes. But the thing was, they didn't usually end up being the people who who led the world or who, who changed the world. And that is because... Fundamentally, doing well at school and doing well at life are very different competitions. Doing well at school means playing by the rules. And so you're usually not the person who's leading the charge and who's revolutionizing things if you're always trying to follow what has come before you. Another really key principle here is that the people who do great at school are often generalists. You know, you, you, if, you're, if you love math and you're really good at math, that's nice, but in school, you need to st- stop studying math to learn history and learn English and learn all these other things. In that way, passion is actually punished. But when we go out into the working world, you know, if you're going to be an a, a engineer or computer scientist, a scientist at Google, they don't care if you're good at history. They don't care probably if you're good at English as long as you speak it. They, they just care if you are good at math and you are good at computer science. So being a specialist is rewarded. So what we see is that school doesn't map onto life exactly in the same way. So those people do well, but they don't usually, they don't usually end up leading the world or changing the world. You are probably someone really good to get to comment
1: on this. And that is my observation that when you look at individual stories of success, almost always, maybe always, there's always a piece of the puzzle that could best be described as luck. You met the right person at the right time. You were at the right place something happened serendipitously that contributed to whatever success you're talking about. Do you agree that's a, a big piece of it?
2: Undoubtedly. Uh, that's that's totally true. And and some people might find that, that sad. Some people might think, oh, geez, I was just unlucky. But what's really interesting is that uh, uh, Professor Richard Wiseman has done research on luck. And, you know, luck isn't just... Randomness. Uh, there are things you can do to be more lucky. You know, he found that there were many things that people who stumbled upon serendipitous opportunities had in common. Often these people were more extroverted. These people scored higher on openness to experience. You know, these people were very good at finding the silver lining in negative situations. You know, so there are things you can do to increase your luck by basically it's about opening up. It's about doing more things. You know, if you do very few things, the same things every day, if you don't leave the house, you're not going to be exposed to a lot of new opportunities. So luck is definitely critical in success, but luck is something that we can actually Actually increase and is probably worth trying to do undoubtedly Peter Sims uh, wrote an excellent book called Little Bets that talks about uh, some of the research and the examples in terms of people who tried more things and what we see is that by just giving things a shot, not overly committing too much time, energy, or resources, but by giving more things a shot, you meet new people, you hear about new opportunities, you know, you open up the possibility for more good things to happen to you. This is, this is really critical, and we've seen this level of success. This is how Pixar works. This is how top comedians work. They don't just randomly try things. They test jokes to see what works, and then you see the filtered version of what they're done with. So it's really critical that we try and do the things to open ourselves up to increase luck.
1: My guest is Eric Barker. He is author of a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and he also writes a blog with that same name. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill – that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So you can live clarit and clear, uses directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Eric, in almost every discussion about personal success will come the subject of confidence, that you, you have to exude confidence, you have to appear confident, because people like people who are confident. But you have a different opinion
2: confidence is really it's really interesting because you know uh, many of the issues on success that we talk about you know there's there is a discussion there's a back and forth uh you know you could uh, with confidence you don't you don't see too many books on how to how to be less confident or you know there's 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 not another side to that but what we often see when we look at the research is what you said is absolutely true confidence really impresses people in fact One study showed that people will actually choose the more confident person, the more confident candidate, over a person who has a better track record, which which, on the surface is shocking that you would pick a stockbroker who's more confident than somebody who's actually made more money. So yes, confidence has huge effects on other people. The only problem is that confidence also leads to a a lot of potentially negative things in the sense of we can become arrogant. We can also, you know, uh, people can dislike us because we're too confident. By the same token, you know, confidence often ends up becoming illusory. We, we, we don't, we're not seeing the world realistically, which can negatively affect our performance. But on, and on the flip side, low confidence actually also translates into, there's a more positive spin on it, humility we're more willing to learn, we're more willing to listen, we don't offend people. So both high confidence and low confidence have strengths and weaknesses, but it turns out what the research is showing is actually beneficial is to actually reject the confidence paradigm and to try something that's called self-compassion, which is basically to look at things realistic and rather than lying to yourself about how great you are, to just be ready to forgive yourself, to realize you can fail, You're seeing the world clearly, you're doing your best, and you realize that you're human, you're fallible, and you're going to forgive yourself. This, in uh, research by Kristen Neff at University of Texas at Austin, shows it has all positives of self-confidence without those negatives like arrogance. Mm. Well, that's interesting. I've always been uh,
1: fascinated by confidence and how people who are really confident often Get jobs and do things, as you were saying, better than the people who have the track record, because there's something about them that they're good at getting the job because they just exude that I can take care of this, but but they can't really take care
2: of it. And we usually find that out later. But but people really fall for that. And that's why something if if you're somebody who doesn't come off, you know, as quite confident, you know, who who doesn't make that impression on people, there are things you can do there as well, which is what's really critical is is being again, those reputational effects. You know, are there clear metrics for how well you're doing, where at least people can see the you know, the performance are people getting exposed to the good work you do? Because when other people, you know, over time, who might be more confident, they start to screw up, you know, at the very least, over time, if you're somebody who produces results, who's consistent, who's reliable, who's well-liked, but what's really difficult is in situations where it's not clear who did what. It's not clear who got the credit. That makes things very difficult for low-confidence people. You want to make sure that you're in a place where people can attribute your work to you. There are clear metrics and that people can see the good work you're doing. But how do you know whether
1: to let people see the good work you're doing or you need to toot your own horn to make sure that people see what the good work you're doing?
2: That's a really good point. And there's a, you know, there's a fine line there between, you know, tooting your own horn. One thing that, uh, one thing that top executives have uh, heard consistently uh, recommend is just once a week at the end of the week, sending your boss an email and kind of just doing a nice little sum up of what you've been up to, what you've accomplished, what's been, what's been going on. Not bragging but you're giving them an update. Because hey, your, your boss is busy. They got their own things going on. They've got their own boss. They've got their own priorities. For them to be able to look at a quick email, bullet points, see here's what you've been working on, here's what you've been up to, here's the reason they keep paying you, and here are the good things you've accomplished, You know that's going to be much easier for them to process. They're going to know you're on top of it. The fact that you took the time to write that sum up, and those are the things that are going to be highlighted in their memory, You know that's a good way of keeping them abreast of what's going on, quick bullet point report, makes you look good, and if things don't work out with your current boss, you can take all of those weekly reports you've done, put them all together, and use those accomplishments to update your resume.
1: It seems pretty well accepted in discussions on success, the theory that it's not what you know, it's who you know, that you have to have connections to the right people in order to be a success. What do you think?
2: We, we often hear this issue of it's not what you know, uh, it's who you know. And in many ways, the, the research on this is, is powerful, you know, in that just knowing more people, having stronger connections to people is, you know, is very valuable. In fact, some of the fundamental research in this arena done by Timothy Granovetter is on weak ties. And that is the people who aren't your closest friends, but the people who are one degree out that's where so many opportunities come from. Because the people that you are close with, you talk to them a lot. You know a lot of the same things they know. You hear about the same stuff. But people are one degree out. They're hearing about things you aren't. So that's where a lot of new opportunities, fresh possibilities come from. So merely by having a bigger network, you increase those number of weak ties. You hear about more opportunities, more possibilities, more people to work with. So People hear this and it sounds like, oh, I've got to be an extrovert. I have to be a people person. But there is a flip side to this. And that is that all that time spent socializing, all that time, you know, spent dealing with people, unless you are in a purely social job like sales, you know, They're skill building, you know, and what we see so often is that the research shows a lot of people who are top in their field are introverts. Why? Because they simply have more hours to get good at what they're doing. So it really becomes critical to understand what you're like, if you're more introverted, if you're more extroverted, and aligning the environment and the role with your natural abilities. I remember hearing, in fact, we talked about it on this podcast, this concept
1: of weak ties. And it occurred to me that there's something there that, in fact, your friends, your boss, the people closest to you have an investment in you to keep you the way you are. And not intentionally, but may be less inclined to help you change into something else. Whereas people who don't have that investment in you, weak
2: tie people, are perhaps more inclined to help you. There's always that balance because, you know, in, in friend relationships, there's there's often envy. If these people are co-workers, uh, you know, they, they might not want you to leave if you're a great employee. Often, uh, employees have one of two relationships with their boss if they're a good employee. And that is Reed Hoffman talks about tours of duty where good bosses will often say, you've been a great employee. Hey, after two or three years here, uh, you know, I, I will help you find that next great op- you know, opportunity. You did good for me, so I'm going to do good for you. And then there's other bosses who say you are great at what you do, and I'm going to make sure you keep on doing it because I don't want you to leave because I don't want to lose a great employee. Sometimes, you know, those people who are one degree out, who have heard about our reputation, if we've done a good job of building it, uh, they in some ways can be more helpful because there's not those those sticky issues like uh, like envy and 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 that investment in keeping you around
1: talk about winners never quit cuz i think they sometimes they quit
2: we've heard so much about about grit the ability to to persist in the face of challenges and that's really you know that's really critical but we have that other side of it exactly what you're talking about which is we need to try new things kind of like i was talking about with the luck issue that issue of little bets getting out there and trying new things, this is really critical because we only have so many hours in a day. You need to know what's important, especially if you're young, you need to try things to see what you're good at, to see what you want to apply grit to. So we need to spend a little bit of time just seeing new things, learning new things. And if your entire day is filled up with all these things you're trying to persist and be gritty at, you know, that's not great. In economics, you have the principle of opportunity cost. You know, if you're spending an hour here, you're not spending it there. So we need to make sure that we're not being, you know, we're not persisting on things that aren't going to have long term value.
1: I wonder, I'd like to get you to talk about, I'm not sure if this is a really big thing or not, but when, when to quit. That sometimes people think they want to do something and they really try really hard, but they don't have it. They just don't have it. And they keep banging their head against the wall and refuse to quit when maybe they need to.
2: The, there's no doubt about that, and there's some research done by uh, Gabrielle Ettingen uh, at NYU where she talks about when we should when we should quit and when we should stick. And she has a very simple uh, system for this that we can all apply. Uh, she calls it Whoop, W O O P. And you know, many of us wish for things, but we we don't know how to validate them. We don't know if we have a good plan. We don't know if we're working out. We don't know if we should if we should stay or we should go. And what she says is, using WHOOP, wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. First, you want to think about what is it that you, you want. What's your wish? Oh, I, I want to make a lot of money. Okay, but we, we got to take it to an outcome stage. What do you actually want to achieve? Okay, well, I want to I get a vice president job at a, at, a, at a big bank. Okay, that's doable. Next, what's the obstacle? The obstacle is, well, I don't, I don't know anybody in HR there. Okay, great, what's your plan? Your plan is, well, I'm gonna go on LinkedIn, I'm gonna see which friends I know that work at banks or have or have connections there. What Edigen found is that not only did this help people take things from the wish stage to actually something executable, but how the people felt after they did this little exercise was very indicative of if their plans were realistic and likely to work out. If people went through those four steps and they felt good, the plan was often realistic. It often worked out. If they felt negative, if it felt like, oh, you know, I, I can't achieve this, then that was the thing where they should really think about, is this goal realistic or or do I need a new or different plan? And of course, the the trick is
1: to take that research, to take that advice that you've uncovered and apply that to your own career and your own life path of success. But what you've said really does help bring bring it more in focus. And I appreciate that. Eric Barker has been my guest. He writes the blog, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and his book is called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, and you will find a link to it in the show notes at Amazon. Thank you, Eric.
2: Oh, thanks so much. It was really great talking to you.
1: There is something you are using right now. Without it, it, you couldn't function. You would just be a blob of goo, and (laughs) and yet you rarely think about it. It's your bones, your skeleton, and it is a marvel of nature. Brian Swittick is a writer who's written several books. His latest is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. Hey, Brian, welcome.
0: Oh, Thanks for having me on.
1: So let's start with the, the fundamentals. Uh, how many bones do we have? What do they do? What are they made of? Uh, let's start there.
0: We have about uh, 206 bones in in an adult skeleton, uh, but that's variable. Um, Not only, like, you know, if you happen to lose a limb or something, you're obviously going to have less bones, but also because... Uh, There are bones um, like these tiny bones called sesamoids, or it means uh, seed bones, that uh, grow in tendons. And some people have them on the underside of a finger or toe, and other people don't. Uh, There are bones called wormian bones that are basically skull bones that don't fuse with the rest of uh, their neighboring skull bones uh, and are extra. Um, So, you know, 206 is more or less the count in an adult human skeleton. And what bone does, I mean, it really is a multifunctional tissue. It's a system, you know, as much as your skin or your muscle or your nervous system is. You know, for example, a bone marrow, the marrow inside of our bones that creates our blood cells. Uh, our bones protect us. They protect our vital organs, that rib cage that wraps around us. They allow our movement and our flexibility. Um, the fact that, you know, we have a shoulder blade that's at our back rather than to our side. The fact that we have, you know, bones in our lower arm that allow us to put our hands, you know, palm down or palm up. That's really opened up a lot of possibilities, you know, everything from, you know, the way that we construct or make things like stone tools to baseball to the way that I type. You know, it was all determined by the shape of our Skeletons. So it's not just, you know, sort of the static stuff that's just there and is kind of pulled around by our soft tissues. It's really this integrated and, you know, very important um, system.
1: And does the system work well? And what I mean by that is I've heard that, you know, so many people have back pain and, and trouble because really the skeleton isn't as good as it could be.
0: Yeah, I mean, the human skeleton is absolutely ridiculous. If you asked, you know, an engineer or a designer to make an efficient looking, you know, organism, they probably give you something that's a bit more quadrupedal, something closer to a dog or a cat or something like that. The fact that we stand upright and all the pains associated from that is really, um, you know, something handed down to us from our past history, from when our ancestors used to live in the trees and then they uh, came down onto the ground, you know, around about, you know, 3.5 Million years ago, so we 're left with you know an upper body that became adapted to clambering around and swinging around in the trees um, and a lower body that became adapted to uh, walking upright on the ground and a lot of our you know pains, even the fact that we can dislocate our shoulders relatively easily because they 're not really anchored in to the rest of our skeletons by very much other than the muscles and the soft tissues, you know, it is an argument for what you might call unintelligent design that you know we 're this kind of heap of historical accidents that we just happen to be the way we are because of these quirks in our past. But if you ask someone to, you know, create an optimal skeleton for the kind of life that we want to live, it might actually look very different.
1: And yet, you know, humans are able to do amazing things in terms of endurance and speed and things. So, So something's working.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're certainly... Functional is one of those things where it's like, do we, how well do we function, what our, our goal is. Like, so, for example, baseball is a good example for this. Like an olive baboon that you've probably seen in a documentary out in the African savannah, they can't throw overhand. Their shoulder blades are, are to the sides. They can chuck stuff at you kind of underhand, but they can't do an overhand pitch or a fastball or anything like that. We can do that because our shoulder blades are at our backs and we've gained flexibility from that ancient ancestry. So a lot of just happenstances in our past, you know, made us reliant on our ability to be flexible and to, you know, manipulate tools and kind of create structures. You know, we don't have claws or, you know, really sharp teeth or, you know, protective pelt or anything. We're a really actually kind of weird species. But, you know, what made us so successful is our ability to be flexible and, you know, adaptive with our minds and manipulating the environment around us.
1: One of the things that's always fascinated me is that bones can break and then heal. I mean, that to me, that's just amazing. And what I wonder is, is there something particularly special about human bones? Because, for example, when, when a horse breaks its leg, uh, there is little talk about healing the horse's bones. Usually the horse is put down. So is there something special about human bones that makes them more likely to heal?
0: well i mean horses its its bone tissue just like we have it's just the fact that you know historically people don't, haven't wanted to put in the work to um you know get that horse's leg to heal properly or if there's a job that that horse has to do that it won't be able to do anymore um you know horse's bones can heal just like ours do and it's part of the growth of bone tissue the way the bone maintains itself that your bones are constantly laying down new bone tissue, eating up old bone tissue, um, you know, a bone like your thigh bone or your femur will basically change itself entirely over about, you know, in about 10 years. So it doesn't happen in an instant, but that constant eating away and also building um, will reshape your bones over time. And it's the same phenomenon. What allows our bones to grow and change shape also allows them heal, that when a break happens, that those same cells you know, migrate to, to that area, start to ooze out new bone tissue, the dead tissue is eaten away, and then there's repair, and hopefully if it does its job well, you won't be able to even tell that there was an injury there.
1: Another question I've always wondered about, are we as tall as our bones allow, or do our bones just get as big as we would have otherwise? You know, wh- Which is the chicken and which is the egg?
0: Yeah, um, for us to get Bigger or taller, our bones, the anatomy, the gross anatomy of our bones would have to change um, that 's like way well, you can 't really have a mouse the size of an elephant It would just collapse under its own weight because its bones aren 't stout enough to carry that weight, um, or if you look at you know the bones of you know a really big dinosaur or something like that, like how stout and sturdy those are, also in their case that they had air sacs that invaded. Their skeletons and you know made their bones light while keeping them strong, and this kind of trade-off that you always have. So bone doesn't have unlimited potential; it has limits on it. So for the human skeleton, you know to get you know bigger or taller, it would require some structural modifications, some changes. Um, like you know probably our hips and our thigh bones in particular would have to get stouter and sturdier to carry that extra weight um but there are things you know in in just even our life as we are now that make a difference to our stature you know particularly when we're young and growing that you know if we're malnourished or we're under incredible emotional stress for a prolonged period of time um that we won't grow to be as tall as we might otherwise be uh that we might you know grow up to be a little bit stunted or have to have you know eventually once we get out of those situations um have those phenomena reversed and be able to, you know, grow to uh, what we consider an average or, you know, about average adult height. So, you know, everything from the mechanics of this to the fact that our bone is an integrated system, that it's affected by even our emotions, therefore under incredible stress and anxiety, that that releases hormones, it affects the way that we grow. Um, And, you know, it plays into just how, you know, vital and how dynamic uh, a tissue bone is.
1: Well, and I know know that you don't have to go very far back in history. If you go back to Revolutionary War times and go into a home that was built back then, you know, the doorways are lower, people were smaller. So why? What happened in just a couple hundred years that we're now taller than we used to be?
0: You know, it seems to do a lot with, um, you know, nutrition and, you know, some of the cultural aspects of these things, we're not necessarily getting um, taller as a species or an adaptation. You know, we, we are evolving. Most of it's in our genetics. Things like, you know, our tolerance to uh, milk and uh, lactose. Um, it's not really been detected in the skeleton. just just, if anything, um, you know, since the invention of agriculture and people have lived in settled societies rather than being, Hunter-gatherers, or you know, being more active, that the density of our bones has actually decreased. That you know, it looks like almost like a form of osteoporosis, where it's easier to lose bone tissue and to break our bones because we're not as active as we used to. be Because bone responds to exercise and it becomes more dense and more sturdy. Um, so, the fact that you know, shorter um, you know, households or the impression of shorter people has a lot to do with um, the way. Uh, that human culture influences our bodies and also you know, certain things like how we you know, lay out a city and, and, and build homes. So you know, we're not getting necessarily taller and um, taller throughout human history, but the potential that we have now, because you know, f- at least in the westernized world for many of us, you know, food is more available, uh, we have better you know, care during childhood, it allows us to reach different biological potentials uh, that were always there, it's just they might have been unrealized for, for one reason or another
1: are teeth bones?
0: They're part of our skeleton, but teeth are not bone the same way that like a rib is, is bone. So teeth have an outer coating of a mineralized, you know, hard tissue called enamel. And there's dentin underneath that. That's a little bit softer. Um, But teeth are very similar to what bones started as the very earliest bones, about 455 million years old. Um, They didn't repair or maintain themselves the way our bones do now. It, they were much more like teeth, and they're this exterior armor that offered protection. It was only after that that we started to get an internal skeleton. So even though teeth are very much a part of our skeletons, they're made of uh, different tissues than our bones are. Hmm.
1: Do we generally do a pretty good job of taking care of our bones, or or do we beat them up pretty bad?
0: For the most part, bones are pretty good at... Um, taking care of themselves, but you know, just about everybody. You know, if you look at you know somebody's skeleton if they're in a museum or, you know, anthropology um, collection if they've you know, consented to leave their body to science, you'll find breaks that we didn't even know that we had. You know, how many times have you you know stubbed your toe, on uh, you know a piece of furniture or you know getting up off the couch or something like that, and it really hurts. And you think, okay, well it's not so bad. It's going away. You might have broken it and you know had an incomplete fracture or some other damage and not really knowing it was there, and, you know, our bones will record those injuries. So, you know, it really depends on the lives that we live. What's really kind of amazing is that bone can repair itself. That it's not that, you know, we, we snap a femur or something like that, and then that's just it, that, you know, with the proper care and patience, that that bone can repair itself and go back to doing its old job.
1: Why is it? Does it seem that bones last so long? I mean, the rest of us goes away, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but but the bones seem to go on. I mean, you bones in museums that are you know zillions of years old.
0: Part of that is that you know bones are harder uh, tissue. They're part mineral. Uh, it's a mineral called uh, hydroxyapatite, and that can with a protein called collagen makes bones both strong and flexible, which is important because um, there needs to be some bend and flex. If it's just the mineral part, they'd be incredibly brittle and just shatter. But the fact that bones are a hard tissue means that they can last longer on their own but even then after a couple of years you know i see this all the time when i do you know fossil field work and come across the skeletons of like mule deer or you know ravens or things like that you know after a few years bones will weather away and turn to dust and crack but if a body or skeleton is buried quickly enough uh, oftentimes water bearing minerals will percolate through those bones in the spaces and the cavities all the pores that exist because bone is very porous it's kind of like a sponge um and it will start to turn to uh, some of those minerals that are deposited in it. So the natural mineral will be replaced by harder, you know, minerals that have been transported into that bone. And that's how we get fossils. And, you know, the mineralization is, isn't always complete, um, but enough to let these bones, you know, last for hundreds of millions of years and give us that fossil record that tells us about some of these things.
1: And lastly, is there anything that we haven't talked about that's that particularly fascinating or interesting, or, or people ask you about, or are amazed to hear about bones that, that we haven't talked about?
0: A lot of what I found most fascinating in my research about bones was not just the biology of bones, but um, sort of the how cultural practices around bones and our view of bones have has changed um, over time. That, for example, um, in the late 1700s and during the 1800s, uh, anthropology in America was very focused on um, racial divisions. That basically there was this belief that there were five races that, that existed, and everybody could be categorized, you know, uh, this way or that. And you know, skeletons and skulls in particular were drawn upon to do this. You know, many skulls and and, and skeletons and bodies were stolen and sent to museums, you know, to try and prove this. and It turned out, you know, total junk that, you know, race is a cultural and a societal concept. There's no skeletal markers, no biological markers, you know, to make these divisions or uphold them.
1: But wait, wait. are you saying that if, if you dug up a, a skeleton that it, and all it was was, a, was bones, that you can't tell from the skeleton whether a person was white or black or Asian or... or you can't tell?
0: That's right. Um, because there's so much variability. There's only been one trait that's ever been possibly brought out as, as a potential marker, but even that is pretty squishy, and that's uh, what some anthropologists call spoon-shaped incisors. So your incisors are your uh, big front teeth. Um, that you know goes right at the center of, of your mouth, and even that uh it was thought to be a marker of people of Asian descent, but we also see it in some uh, Native American groups, so even that, like you might not be able to tell um you know even the differences between um you know different genders genders is is also a social contract. you can tell the difference between. Male and female sexes based upon the hip bones, but how someone identifies or would have presented themselves or their life history—you um, would need to either talk to them or have some other cultural background or artifact, um, you know, in order to tell these things. That you know, the stuff that we sometimes take as you know so apparent to us are actually you know, incredibly variable, and that there's no way to make clean distinctions between. One race and another based upon skeletons between, oftentimes if you only have the bones, between someone who identified as a man versus identified as as, as a woman. So there are limits to the, some of these things, but at the same time, I think it's pretty amazing that um, there's so much shading and variability through this, even down to our bones that you know, really brings us together.
1: Well, it's really interesting how uh, amazing and essential and miraculous bones are, and uh, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Brian Swittick has been my guest. The book is Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone, and there's a link to his book in the show notes. Supposedly, we are all, you, me, and Kevin Bacon, we are all six degrees of separation apart. Pick a random stranger anywhere in the country and the theory goes that chances are you can build a chain of acquaintances between the two of you in no more than six hops. Actually, it seems far less than that, mostly because of the internet. According to Facebook, the average Facebook user is only three and a half degrees of separation away from every other Facebook user. And Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg is no more than 3.17 degrees of separation from all Facebook members. So where did the six degrees of separation come from? Well, there was actually an experiment done in 1967. But the important thing to understand about that experiment is that it required people to actually know each other. And they had to be on a first-name basis for the connection to count. And that is something you should know. And that brings us to the end of our final show for 2021. I appreciate you listening and telling your friends about this podcast, and I hope you will continue to listen and tell your friends in 2022. I'm Micah Ruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.